whatever was happening that was good in some of these decentralized towns and you know smaller cities was accelerated by the pandemic insofar as conversations that had already started to happen between people were you know were able to move forward in terms of saying okay here are our limitations but here are our skill sets because we've all had you know beer together and scones together and and you know created zombie apocalypse film festivals together you know we know who knows you know we know how to put a, a sound system together outside we know how to put up a tent we know how to create um you know humorous things we know how to uh regulate you know change the town zoning so that we can bump out the sidewalk into the main street which is really hard in a place where you don't have that kind of civic conversation i mean that's like tons of red tape but you know there are places that said we already found each other by working on garlic festivals and science programming together so we know how to go to the mayor and say dude or dudette you must let us put this barrier in the middle of the thing so that people can sit in what was formerly main street and eat all the convers- it was almost like the pandemic rewarded those who had already ventured out of their doors and found ways to get past their social oogliness to figure out how to do things together and i i always flinch at the words like um uh, why can't we all just get along and work together and stuff? You can't just do that out of nowhere. It has to, that's an, it's an accumulation. But um, for those who had accumulated conversations where they said like, Hmm, I don't like that person, but I trust that person, <laughs> you know, like I don't like that person, but that person knows how to run a sound system. You know, um, those, those places were rewarded. And yes, they were not in the major cities, but the, the, book that I wrote was inclusive of the major cities because there are ways that people in cities also figure out how to know who does what so that they can do the good stuff. As somebody who lives in Queens, as somebody who stayed in the city for various reasons throughout the pandemic, I saw a lot of friends and colleagues and people generally leave the city. I I saw a lot of people, myself included, questioning whether it's necessary to do the work that I do to continue to live in a place like New York and whether the trade-offs of being stuck in a one bedroom apartment throughout the pandemic were necessarily worth it during a time when there was just nothing to do aside from watch Netflix, which anyone can do at any place. Um, There is this acceleration of decentralization from the standpoint of people are leaving cities and moving to towns to a certain extent, at least. You know, there's a guy named Richard Florida. He's really like the preeminent urbanist and kind of person who's just talking about these kinds of shifts uh, to, you know, he, he created the, the term, the creative class. And there's a, there's a bit of an issue. It's funny because people don't like the word class. So it's, it's tough. Americans, they, they not only hate it, but have no concept of class generally, I think. They, they feel a little allergic to it because they, they associate it with caste, you know, which we're really realizing. And, and, in a lot of ways for good reason. So I, but that said, I, a lot of people pushed past the terminology to see the value of what he was talking about. And he said, there are three T's. There's a uh, tech talent and tech um, uh, technology, talent and tolerance. And he said, any place that has those three things going on will thrive. You need 
tolerance meaning people who get outside of the boxes of of restriction from you know various um, restrictive ideologies particularly the various churches and you know talent of course you know many different kinds of talent and then um, technology people willing to embrace that and you know all those words that you people use in queens now like disruptable and stuff like that i'm a tech journalist so it's even worse than that <laughs> i'm at the tip of that spear dar <laughs> Well, then, then I might call you and ask for some some advice and some some elucidation. But so he, uh, it was interesting because the other thing that he talked about was how spiky things have gotten. Meaning, you'll have these places, whether it's New York City or San Francisco or Singapore, where you just have such a confluence of you know really sophisticated tech embrace, but also sophisticated tech. Uh, tolerance, you know, tolerance is a weird word, inclusion, you know, and also kind of the the nightlife that draws younger folks who like a little excitement in their life. You know, there are only certain kinds of places that have that. And so therefore, we're getting very spiky in terms of all of the talent and the money and the tech and all that cool stuff going to these little places and then these small cities losing out. Well, dot, dot, dot. And you know this because you're a tech journalist. Suddenly, you know, people have figured out how to do remote learning, remote communication, remote, all of that stuff. John Kerry, Senator Kerry said, we've made 10 years of progress in six months. Like all the tech was there, but now we use it. So, you know, that's number one. And then number two, we were stuck in our towns and we discovered, I was up in Northern Vermont five years ago and all these kids came in with their like hoodies and they were all kind of pale. And I thought, Oh, I know what's going on. These are a bunch of really depressed kids who are in like dead end lives and they're not happy. And they're at this bar to drink and medicate. No, there was like a karaoke thing and they blasted. I mean, these kids just, that's, that's all they needed on Saturday night. They just had this major karaoke thing and it wasn't Alice Tully Hall, but it was something to do. And I, and a lot of places, as simple as it sounds, found out how to create something to do that could either be sort of humorous and hokey or kind of, you know, like Broadway in the Burbs. So those things have changed. And, and I think Richard Florida is probably feeling very happy about this because he really kind of eulogizes the, you know, he's very sad that you have all of this talent going to one place and all of that life and all of that you know, sparkle being in this little place and not being in the the smaller places. I've been noticing that the smaller places have been getting their groove for a long time. You are right that the pandemic got people to up their game and they realized their game was there. I grew up in the Bay Area and I always dreamed of moving to not just a place like New York, but New York specifically for, for work and for other reasons. And I think that there is I mean, that's natural, right? That's that's sort of a natural inclination for teenagers like to, you know, to want to get out of this town and to, to uproot themselves and, and move to a new place. And obviously you are somebody who, by nature of your job, travels around a lot. How much of the impulse of sort of, of, of building up these places is an attempt to kind of get people to stay put? Uh, <laughs> All right. You totally, you've totally outed me because, you know, there's a part of me that sees if people can be more interested in where they are and be and be more cool and and resilient and sophisticated about where they are and they get less um 
you know, they, they, they fetishize going there, wherever there is less, you know, there are a few great things that can happen. One fossil fuel footprint, you know, you're not needing to fly off to this place with the turquoise water and this place with the, with the giant waterfall, you know, you suddenly discover that you have your own waterfall in your backyard. So like a great example is, is in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, where um, the blob was uh, partially filmed there in the fifties. The, the great blob. The original. The horrendous acting, I must say. Um, I mean, but no, like. Not by the blob. The blob was great. Yeah, no, no, the blob was good. Actually, the blob really showed up and um, Steve McQueen was really good. But there's like the scene where he goes into a theater and he says, hey, guys, you got to know something. And and he's his acting is good, but all of his friends are like reading off of cue cards and they're saying, shh, shh, man, stop. We're trying to watch a movie. And he's like, you don't understand. There's this blob and it's coming out. And they're like, really, man, we want to watch the movie. And then the blob starts to come through the vent ventilation system. So they figured out in Phoenixville, which was a town that was, you know, post steel, a rust belt town. Well, I would say despairing would be a better, you know, like shadow economy, drugs, you know, sex trade, you know, not, not legal economy. They discovered that since the blob had been partially filmed in their town and in the theater that they were, they had revived and, you know, bought for a dollar and were playing movies in, that they could have a blob fest where they would show the blob in the theater the blob is in and turn it into a whole thing called the blob fest. And now it's like this big science fiction weekend. I was there for a Godzilla weekend. Um, So they bring in like these sci-fi writers and stuff. And, and everybody wants to live in Phoenixville now, you know, and, and that declogs all of that concentrated uh, population in one place. And now people want to live. And, in, and if you live in Philadelphia, you want to make a day trip. You don't have to go to Paris because, you know, why would you go to Paris? You've got Blobfest coming up <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> and at the end of the year, you have the, the burning, the, the Firebird Festival where they burn a phoenix because it's Phoenixville, which is also very meaningful and very interesting. So there's a part of me that says decentralize the fascination of who you are, where we are. Also take that as an example that no one can be everywhere all at once democracy looks like this, you know, you do this thing, they do this thing. We all have mosaic tiles that fit into a big picture and we can have faith in each other that each town is kind of doing some fun chugging along historical cultural thing. You're absolutely right from the the, the very urgent concerns around climate change and carbon footprint. But, you know, at least traditionally, travel has always been such an important part of expanding your horizons and actually getting out there, meeting new people, seeing new places, uh, immersing yourself in new cultures. And, you know, there's a certain degree of that that can happen online, but it's still a a pretty bad facsimile for actually like getting out there and going to a new place. I don't know if you're like me. I think about this all the time. First of all, cities, if you're talking footprint, cities are completely where it's at. You're all jammed together as, as I read a book called the green metropolis at where the author was writing about um, the vertical commute, you know, you commute up 20, 20 stories and you walk three blocks to get there and then you vertically commute down to get your lunch. And, and so um, there's nothing like a city and the, the concentration of what you can learn about yourself and the world within a city block and all the immigrant communities coming and thinking about the world and the way the world comes to you, like no comparison. So I'm actually, I love cities. I'm very pro city. 
But I also love the way that if you're living in a town, you can feel good and cool and like you are where you're supposed to be. And the aspiration isn't that someday you're going to have to go to the city if you really want to be a full person. It's funny because as a folk singer, I lived at the um, cross section of two highways. So this was like, I was 40 minutes away from a very accessible airport with $9 parking, you know, 24, like these were my necessities. And I was at the 91 and 90, uh, you know, cross whatever. So I could go to Ohio, Boston, Maine, New York, you know, all equidistant. And and I was actually in a better position than I would have been if I lived in a city. So I did get to see how people figured out how to keep on growing their brains. And, but you're right. Like I want my kids to travel. There's no, I feel like I've traveled enough. I don't necessarily have to go back to Australia to tour anymore. Like I saw it really cool, fantastic birds and all the trees, feral cats, the best coffee I've ever had. However, did it. <laughs> expanded from it. And I wish that for everybody. I, I wish that there was a way to to narrow the, the fossil fuel print, the footprint of that. But maybe one compromise is for, you know, places in Ohio that are the birthplace of, of this rock star or this, you know, or, or the blob, that they can find the blob, their inner blob. And also say, like, we're not flyover country, which is such an, an offensive term. Nothing is flyover country because we created, you know, because we're the birthplace of Michael Jordan or whatever. I, I really wish that for people so that they don't feel forgotten and then become totalitarian fascists, which is another concern. Do you still feel a sense of obligation doing what you do and that you're somebody with a fan base to at some point in the future travel to Australia, you know, these places where, you know, people want to see you and where you haven't been in a while, you know, surely you want to continue to kind of get out in front of as many people as possible, or at least give those people the opportunity to come see you who haven't had it in the past. Yeah. Yeah. What's the word metrics? It's like all the metrics. <laughs> Cause you know, there is a question, like if I only play in, you know, Kentucky, then other people have to drive a gazillion miles if they really want to come see a live concert. But so I do get out, but I, I've also tried to, I mean, I think I, I lucked out. I, I took two trains. I was on a um, tour of a, a cruise boat. So, which is something that, you know, it's kind of, I feel funny about, but I was on a cruise ship and I'm like surrounded by people who are teachers and social, social workers and psychologists. Like they do God's work all year long. And then they take this one cruise and it's filled with all of my friend musicians and, fun things. So I took a train down to the cruise instead of flying. And I slept on the train. And I took pictures all along the way. And I just it expanded me as a person. It was such a good thing to do. I was basically saying, hopefully without any guilt, like, but saying, I took a train. It's the most fuel efficient and least subsidized transportation in our country. And we need to give it our love and our attention. And Amtrak, you know, who is a person, of course, wrote back to me throughout my whole posting, like, thanks, Dar. Joe Amtrak. Yeah, Joe. And then I <laughs> and then I took a, an Amtrak down to a tour that I did in the South. And I think that actually saved my life because it was at the beginning of COVID when people were like, man, this is like really serious. But if I'd gone to LaGuardia and then to the Atlanta International Airport, I would have gotten COVID. It was like the very beginning of March. So taking a train saved my life. I've said 
taking a train is a really interesting way to be in the country and see the country and understand its history and speculate about its future. And let's all do that. I have friends who've been very uh, panicked about the environment and they do, and they're really guilt trippy and that doesn't work for anybody. So, (laughs) so no, I, I do travel around, but I actually try to do as little, I have a national tour coming up and we've gotten it down to one and a half flights like one round trip and a ha- and a and a one way and everything else I'm driving. Wait, so you were on a cruise ship that close to the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic? <laughs> on the cruise ship, there was a news story about the cruise ship that had been grounded and not able and and I was like this is like a problem. And the way that we dealt with it and breathed through it as we were heading home to the home port where we were going to get off was to say, well, that's California. And that's closer to the that specific rim. That's closer to Asia. It's more a West Coast problem right now. It hadn't reached New York, but we all knew it was all about to hit the fan. Last helicopter out of Saigon. I mean, it was we were probably the last cruise ship to dock before they said enough. And we knew it. Aside from that very scary experience of watching that unfold in real time, how is the how is the cruise ship experience for you? There are certain stigmas attached to going to going on a cruise ship. It was a good experience for you. You know, here's the thing: it's you know, you feel like if you pulled a certain curtain back here and there, you would sort of see an industry that's not very well regulated in terms of the labor force, and yet. You would also hear about things that were done as a compensation so that, you know, some people um, from various countries, this was actually a, a an okay thing in terms of, you know, equality and justice and, and social justice, you know, because this was a an industry that people could get involved with as a step into other things, you know, so you kind of kept on telling yourself that it was cool. But the other thing, um, and they talked about ways that they were being fuel efficient and energy efficient. And, um, but the other thing is that, you know, it's a week, it's a week. And the people that I would see had like those t-shirts with a picture of a wolf on them, you know, or they would say like, you know, science teacher, 5k run for neurodiversity. Like they, everybody had a t-shirt or, or something that, that, was a branding of an incredible cause where they stepped out of their lives to, um, or or stepped into their lives to be as inclusive and forward looking as possible for the environment, for um, you know, for Black Lives Matter, for you know, ahead of the curve stuff because that's the music that world that I'm a part of. People were kind to each other. They were kind to me. They were so happy to like put up their feet and. Um, and then you would stop in places. My manager and I went to a, a spice plantation, as it's called, in Belize and bought a whole bunch of spices because that's what you got to do at the end of. And it was so fantastic. I was so grateful. I was like, I've never seen cinnamon growing on a cinnamon tree. I've never seen vanilla beans hanging from a vanilla bean bush. Like I took it in and said, I'm I'm a cooler person because I got to see this. And, and so... Um, I did my best to be a good tourist. It's a very interesting world. I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't do it again if 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 the if the footprint were a little better, I'd feel better about doing it. But I learned a lot about the world from being on the cruise. <laughs> I've seen a trend over the last like several years of these these targeted cruises 
yeah, almost like subcultural cruises. They'll be a lot more curated than a traditional cruise of just sort of like, right. you know, random, like off, off, off Broadway entertainment and actually be uh, a genre or, or you know, right. maybe it's like a Comic-Con on a cruise. Was it, was that the setting? Was it, it was yeah. folk fans? It was, I did two different kinds. One was called Kayamo which is um, more sort of Southern Americana, but they let a few Northern folks like me in. Okay. And the other was the Melissa Etheridge cruise. And, you know, Melissa Etheridge fans, I mean, they are basically, you know, the middle school algebra teachers. I mean, these are the people who do the most wonderful, you know, democracy saving work. And a lot of them were pioneers and in, in all sorts of, for both, you know, feminists and, and for uh, orientation and also for the trans world, you know, so, uh, you know, and Melissa Etheridge herself is fantastic, really great person. So like the whole thing felt good, you know, like we were all, we all know that we're going to come back into port into a world that's filled with storm clouds and, you know, maybe because we went to these islands like Antigua and um, the the Cayman Islands and to Belize and places, maybe we'll know them better when we see them on the news and we see those hurricanes going through and we'll and we'll our hearts will go out a little bit more. You know, there wasn't this kind of like, what can the world do for me? There was like, how can I engage with the world and see the music I want to see? So I uh, know that the Kayamo people are very. It's called Six Man. They're they got it going on. And also, I never felt like I was being treated like a um, a cog. And I have been part of big things where I, you know, they're like, here's your meal tickets, Dan. You know, it's like, oh, it's Dar. You know, I'm actually a woman. But okay, thanks for the drink tickets. Like a massive festival or something where you're basically anonymous. <laughs> yeah. I won't name the, the, the one place that's basically become a franchise concert venue thing. But basically, whenever you go in there, you don't. You don't really feel special, and that's okay because it's. It, I just take my check and go. But but um, uh, six man, those cruises like they make you feel like family by the end. I think the flip side of that, and the thing that would, I, know, I guess, be cause for concern for me in the lead up to it is as somebody with like a certain degree of social anxiety. If I was a notable personality, who is, I mean, you are confined in, mm-hmm. you know, in this. <laughs> cruise for a week or so with people who like who know who you are is it difficult feeling like you have to be basically on for a week you know here's the thing flip it and think about how it was okay so what does that say about that kind of audience that we that they cultivated and that I have because I thought okay this sounds horrendous but I I mean just the not having a choice part you can hide in your room the whole time and there are people who do that um, but I actually liked going out and um, like there were places where you could eat that where the audiences didn't go. I didn't do that. I totally went into the place and, and sat down with folks and talked with them and, and um, they were so cool. And so maybe the fact that I had the escape hatch always um, allowed just me to knowing it was there was useful. Yeah. But, you know, if I felt like I was walking around in a bathing suit with like, you know, I mean, I, there's certain bathing suits I wouldn't walk around in, you know, like I wouldn't want that much scrutiny. But I also felt like I could hang. I could go out without my makeup in the morning and, and uh, do my thing. And the love was in the room, as my record company used to say. I mean, on the subject of being confined for an extended period of time, how have you fared for the past year and a half? Uh, it, 
it was, um, it was a time, it was almost like my life was this huge room of files, you know, all of these experiences and thoughts and things that I meant to think about and figure out and organize in my mind. Um, you know, there I was in that room having to do that. And, um, it was, uh, it was really meaningful. You know, it was, I, I, my manager is this fantastic woman who's like really, uh, energetic. (laughs) So she just said, I, I found someone, she knows tech. She's going to set you up. You have to get this microphone. You have to get this mixer. You have to get these cords and you have to get this schedule and you have to get this mindset. And, and I was like, you know, cause I can just like stare at my hands and like grow, you know, tomatoes and just think about stuff and take long walks. She's like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. It's, it's, I've heard people who've had autism who talk about the part of their treatment being like people forcing them to interface in certain ways that don't feel comfortable. And then having the safety of not having to do that and they can kind of come back. So that was my pandemic year. My, my manager forced me to embrace all this tech, which I'm sure is laughable to you, but was really like psychologically fraught. So I learned all this new stuff. I taught songwriting online, which now I can do. Like I added all this stuff to my world. I also figured out how to clean my refrigerator coils, which is like super simple. And how to consolidate all my vegetarian dishes so that I could become a vegetarian again. And I took long walks that were filled with like giant seabirds. <laughs> like this is, we have a lot of emboldened uh, wildlife around here after that pandemic. And I would even say, I would even venture to say in Queens, you have it too. They definitely came out and started strutting their stuff um, and flapping into our neighborhood the way they had not before. The nightlife around here is very, it's filled with hooting and wooting. And so it was good in that way. And it was, I, I, I focused what I want, like the, the decades ahead to look like during this time. You know, I, I, I turned myself around in some ways. Would you, and, and have you, I guess, traditionally had an issue self-motivating if you don't have somebody there pushing you a little bit? Well, no, it's more like I know what I'm supposed to do, you know, like I'm supposed be getting ready for this tour and I'm supposed to be writing a song for this and I have the schedule to you know do an interview or go in and record something and that's just what I do and you know I'm in my 50s now so I don't have to do as much of that and um and I can call the shots and you know there's not that kind of you know 200 gigs a year and then 200 interviews and 200 people giving you a guilt trip if you don't do it right because you you don't know what you're doing um so I was already like a little less spazzy. I just had this kind of, well, this is what I do. I get on this plane. I do this. I get that. And I was already doing that, you know, getting on a train and trying to reduce the, trying to be more creative. But on some level, it's like, you don't have a choice about any of this. And when we booked this fall, because I'm releasing this album, it's a lot. And I thought how, I don't want to, this isn't, I don't want to get back to business as usual. So uh, I think a lot of people had that moment, like more than I did. I mean, I'm like, okay, I could easily just like get a, like an, a, a rainbow assortment of Crocs, garden my ass off and like put patches on my patches and start, you know, doing like online concerts and thinking that I was going to make ends meet because I just eat a bunch of basil from my garden, you know. I decided, no, 
what I do is I get out there and I do it. And it's, you know, I have children who probably would benefit more from my being home more, but I'm going to be that person again. But you know what? It's not the same. I'm not on a treadmill anymore. I know you've dealt with some depression in the past as, as probably a lot or, or, you know, even most of us have at some point. And for many people, I think myself certainly included to some degree, a lot of what we've been able to sort of silence with all of the noise going on with our lives and all of the forward momentum that we've been able to achieve as just a part of, you know, being out in the world and, and, and working, it's been possible to keep that at bay. Have you had any difficulty with that in amongst all of the sort of slowness and silence of the past year and a half? I think that's such a good layered question uh, because I, um, you know, I was with my kids who are wonderful. And so I didn't, a lot of it was just trying to figure out how to help everybody cope and myself. So in a way it was busy and I, it was almost like learning a new skill set. So number one, and also, you know, they say that sometimes boredom, what we call boredom, and I think boredom and depression have a very similar feel to them is really, and they, and somebody figured this out for me. It's kind of this weird FOMO, this weird fear of missing out where you feel like everybody else is doing something and you don't know what to do with yourself because you're supposed to do this thing that these people are doing. And I think for some people, the pandemic took that anvil off of their shoulders where they're like, nobody's doing anything. So when do I want to wake up? What do I want to eat? What do I want to do with my body and my mind? Because maybe I do want to watch a lot of Netflix. That's what everybody else is doing. And I think that it existentially took some pressure off. And I was happy to see people just say, instead of people being like, well, I learned Spanish. I learned Italian today. I learned that they were like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what I did today. I just looked around, but it was an okay day. And I thought, thank you. We need more being, you know, we need more people feeling comfortable with being because I had to make that piece after my, you know, big suicidal ideation you know, clinical depression thing. So it was, I liked watching people kind of catching up with that peace of mind and um, self-acceptance. So that's another way it wasn't. But yes, the third thing is when you have to, I got back to um, Buddhism and, and what's hilarious is that we were racing around trying to find a name for my album. And one of the lyrics is I'll meet you here. And, and I said, I was thinking about I'll meet you here and the record company said, that's the one that we want. And it's funny because that was what the year taught me. Instead of saying something bad happened, what did I do wrong? This is proof that I'm a failure. This is proof that I should have read more books, written more songs, been smart. I say better, stronger, faster, sooner. You know, instead of meeting reality like that, just saying happiness doesn't mean happy. Happiness is just you're someone gave you this opportunity to be alive. And sometimes that's a flat tire. And, and yes, I should have learned how to fix a flat tire, (laughs) but, but this is the reality. I'll just meet it here instead of taking it so personally. So I think it helps some of my residual depression stuff because you know, um, like a lot of technology has gone wrong. As it did at the beginning of this interview. (laughs) Right. Right. As opposed to like, what's wrong with me. It's like, Oh, this is what's happening right now. And I've, I'm starting to really kind of get farther down into that. So I, I wish for everybody that they can they can take this as a jump off point to something better uh, and not a complete panic 
that they had to just look in the mirror and they couldn't look anywhere else. So you mentioned Buddhism. What is the relationship between I'll meet you here and be here now? (laughs) Well, oh, you know what? Actually, I think there is a difference because be here now is kind of, I think what I was aspiring for this kind of like present moment, present moment. And there's a lot of that, but I think I'll meet you here is more like what fresh hell is this? You know, like, Oh, wow. This is, you know, this fell apart. Oh, and this fell apart right next to it. Like I could have dealt with one jolt today, but I got five. All right. That's what happened. And for me, be here now was always like a, you know, the the crowd that was espousing that I don't, I listened to one of the be here now lectures, but I didn't read any books called be here. Now. But abstractly, you know, the, the idea is clear, right? Of be, right, of be right. present. And, and I almost felt like it's like, you know, carpe diem. And now let me give you this inappropriate massage. And now suddenly like we wake up and like, did what just happened? Whoa. Well, I just, I guess I was here now and, and <laughs> embrace the discomfort, I guess, in a, in a way. <laughs> like, and also like an excuse for things that will lead to discomfort. <laughs> whereas be, whereas I'll meet you here is more like, I have this idea about what I'm supposed to do with my life. I wake up in the morning and I start on that path. But then somewhere I get a little like anxiety attack because it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. And then I just make peace. Like my new motto is just like, I made progress today. Like maybe it was a little bit of weeding. Maybe it was, you know, finding an old recipe. Like it's never what I expect it to be, but something happened. And I, you know, I went a little forward. It, it was somehow generative. And lowering the bar saved my, like, saved, it transformed me. Um, cause every day something awesome happens and I stop saying what I thought that awesome thing should be. And I, I don't know, I feel pretty off the hook now. It's good, but that's not, but be here now is, I don't know. It's more like, it's more like an amoeba. Like for me, it's more like I'm like in my little spaceship going forward and I hit turbulence and have to get the warp speed up to speed. And, you know, like I'm trying to guide the ship, but I hit turbulence. Be here now is kind of more like an amoeba to me. And we're probably both going to hear from people who are like, she totally got it wrong. But (laughs) I like the phrase residual depression that you used earlier. I don't know that I've heard it described exactly like that, but that, that it makes sense to me in the sense that does having dealt with depression mean that you kind of have to be not resigned, but resolved to the fact that who is it? Was it Samuel Johnson or Ben Johnson who called the black dog of depression that to a certain extent, it's always going to kind of be around the corner? Yeah, you know, I know that uh, and it was probably he was probably going from Samuel Johnson or something. Winston Churchill called it his little black dog. So it was and and he was talking to a relative. He's like, oh, us Churchills, you know, we've got this thing in our blood. You know, he really recognized it as a sort of a physical thing and, and, you know, a a brain chemical thing. And he said, oh, you have to deal with your little black dog. You know, we've got the little black dog. And um, and I think that's extremely helpful to sort of say, I have this. There's two there are two or three paths coming out of this, like. For me, it happened when I was 20. I mean, I was on a big lead up to it hitting full force when I was 21. And um, I had some fundamental misunderstandings about what life is. And I encourage people who feel 
this thing that I call who lack the drive to be alive. That's what I call it. If you lack, which is also called suicidal ideation, I realize if you lack the drive to be alive and you just kind of think that being alive is some somewhat absurd and not worth it and easily knocked down, there's something wrong with you. And so it's important to figure out if you have a fundamental misunderstanding, because what you're probably going to discover is a pocket of extreme anger, rage, loathing, injustice, you know, that, that is important to, to barf out. And so I barfed out a bunch, not literally, that was, those are other people's problems. Those are other struggles. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not, not mine, but certainly friends, but I, I got out all of this rage uh, and anger and worked on it. And um, people who had a lot of power, I suddenly saw them as human and was able to, you know, deescalate that and find my own power and find my own, you know, like I did a senior thesis play that was horrendous, but I was like, oh, this is horrendous, but I'm learning because I'm a human and that's what happens. Like I don't, I don't have to die because I did this embarrassing thing. And so, you know, there's some fundamental things that happen when you're first dealing with that, that really elemental depression and that burned off and never came back. And, you know, and then there's like the residual stuff. Like I was listening to Brene Brown and, you know, we can all benefit from just tracking down Brene Brown. And she said, you know, there's, she said something illuminating to me, you know, at 50. So here I am 30 years past the suicidal ideation, but she said, there's embarrassment humiliation, guilt, and shame. And the first three are things that you find yourself in situationally and that that, that's going to happen. Shame is actually feeling like there's something wrong with who you are and we should not have shame. And when I heard that, I thought, Ooh, that's like weeds in a garden that I have to weed that out because, you know, sometimes you're caught with your pants down in the public square and you think there's something desperately wrong with me as opposed to, oh, I wore the wrong belt. And that's just human. But for those of us with the brain chemicals of a little black dog, um, it's it's more important for us to uh, value the, the um, you know, separating embarrassment, guilt, humiliation from this thing called shame. I don't know about you. I have friends who say they don't even know what shame is. I'm like, this is always, this has always been a weird disconnect for me. You know, like I, I considered myself to be a fairly introverted person from the standpoint, like the cruise ship conversation about like having difficulty talking to strangers, but like, obviously I can talk to you on here or I could, you know, I can go on TV. I can do all these things. It's, It's not really an issue. So there is a disconnect and I'm sure doing what you do, you know, a lot of extroverts or certainly you know a lot of performers you know a lot of people who really do a great job of of getting out there i don't know maybe 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 from the outside there seems to be a disconnect between being somebody who's anxious and being somebody who can give their entire self to somebody on a record or on stage you know i you know here's the thing i think that the pandemic actually introduced us to this this part of ourselves that we that i call the introvert which is mm. we we can we can totally do things. I mean, you live in the city, right? So you're working it and you have to deal with people all the time. And, um, but 
it's the introvert is the person who can function as an extrovert, but who really benefits from and loves introverted time. And um, so, um, so I'll say that the other thing is that I have a lot of entertainment friends who have social anxiety disorder. And some of it came from a friend of mine was on a show in a foreign country and she messed up on a TV show and she got off and she was expecting, you know, in the United States, you have this team and they're like, it wasn't so bad. Oh, I couldn't even tell. Oh, who cares? Oh, it happens to everybody. Oh, we'll, we'll fix it in post-op or something. (sighs) She, uh, she was in a country that didn't operate that way. And the whole team met her and humiliated her and said, that wasn't okay. You know, you did something wrong. Everybody makes mistakes. And it, but they said, you did something wrong and it's not okay. Mm. And my friend has social anxiety. She can't do anything without a teleprompter now. She can't go into certain situations. There's certain ways that you can't photograph her, you know. So a lot of uh, performers have social anxiety disorder and they just have to really figure out how to control their environment so they don't feel completely debilitated uh, by ex- by the externals. But is there a disconnect between I don't feel worthy and I feel like I have something to say or something to tell people and I feel like I should be out there? You know, are, are these are these diff- are these hard things to reconcile? Uh well, you know, I'm pretty social. I mean, I, I think I, I remember, you know, there's a story about me being on a bus when I was five years old and, and um, you know, that the bus driver, you know, I came home and I said, the bus driver's name is Lou. And and I said, and I, and he, I was afraid of him because I was the only one on the bus and he's scary because he had a mustache, you know, it's the 70s. And so so I was afraid of him. So I asked him his name and I decided to talk with him so that I, he wouldn't be scary to me. <laughs> Yeah, as opposed to like hiding underneath my seat. And I said, what's your name? And he said, you. I said, my name? Oh, it's Dar. And he said, you. And I said, oh, it's Dar. And he said, Lou. (laughs) So there are all these stories of me being able to like, you know, be social as a way to cope. Um, However, um, uh, yeah. Hmm. Let me regroup for a second. Think for a second. So there's a social question, which we were talking about. And then there's a question of, again, your depression manifesting itself in such a way where you feel like you're not necessarily worthy. Right. No, no, you're right. Okay. So, so, you know, what's interesting is, uh, you know, I lead a, a, a songwriting retreat and I'm, and I've been thinking a lot about like how I talk about songwriting and there's something that I call yon, the yonder star, which is like, these people are brilliant and you're not. But if you stare at them and think about them enough, maybe you might have some iota, you know, might just that that little brilliance might reflect on you and you might be. And that's not how I operate. And I try to get interested in stuff. So I don't even have a choice. I'm like so interested in doing something that I just do it. I mean, (laughs) and I maybe it's songwriting, maybe it's urban planning, maybe it's a YA book. Right. And, and and, And, you know, and and I'm even if it means I have to get out there in a, in a ridiculous clown car, you know, I, I get so excited about something that I'm willing to do it. And at this age, I'm used to the idea that it's going to require some level of fear or, you know, fear of being ridiculous, uh, that that's just going to go with the territory and that everybody has that. And like something really humiliating happened to me in my town 
about seven years ago that had to do with Roger Ailes, which was horrendous. <laughs> to be fair, most things having to do with yeah. Roger Ailes are horrendous. <laughs> well, no, well, his, he had his strategies. And I spoke with a friend of mine uh, who's actually a congressman now. His name is Jamie Raskin. And I was just dealing with this part of my brain called the amygdala, I, I came to learn, which is that mammalian part of your brain that's so afraid that you're going to be put to the edge of the herd and you're going to be picked off by the cheetah. You know, like I'm different and that's bad. And Roger was great at finding that part of your brain and making you feel different and bad in your own community. And so Jamie said, well, you know, the guy who uh, uh, on whom Hotel, was it Hotel Rwanda was based, came and spoke in D.C. And, and he was asked, why do you think other people didn't do more the way you did more? And he said, well, I realize that everyone feels ashamed of something and they feel like they can't do something heroic because they have something to be ashamed of. And he said, and once I realized that everybody feels that way, then I just stepped in because then why not me? It really helped me when Jamie said that. And it really helped me understand sometimes why it's hard to come out with new artwork and step into the public sphere with a book about urban planning or whatever. Everyone's prone to feel very ashamed or think that they have a shameful secret. So if everybody feels that way, then everybody should just get out there and, you know, hang the freak flag. Maybe it's overstated now, but I'm glad people are having conversations around as much as it's a buzzword in the zeitgeist imposter syndrome, because I think that is, you know, a very real thing that, that people deal with. I assume or would hope at this point in, in your very long career that you have confidence in yourself as a songwriter to such a point where you can, you know, write books about it and, and teach people how to do it. Given all the like scholarship that already exists with urban planning, it must've been difficult to sort of like put yourself in that sphere. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was sitting on the, my porch step and I said, mom, <laughs> I called my mom and I was, we were about to do the rounds of like finding out if I could get a publisher for this. And I said, mom, I've been talking about this for a while now. Is this a thing? And she said, yes, it's a thing. And I know this sounds ridiculous and a lot of people don't have their moms around, but like that was a real help when my mom's like, it's a thing, honey. Um, and it was also, um, yeah, it was important enough to me. I kind of, I was so, I was so freaked out by people saying, why can't we all just get along? Why are we so divided? I was like, first of all, I travel all over the place. We're not that divided. People totally figure out ways. And in fact, the language of division is a way to divide people, to make them feel like I learned that from Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes is Fox News. And, and what he did was basically the equivalent of a person standing at the foot of your bed with a megaphone in the morning saying, I want you to remember every embarrassing, stupid thing you did yesterday and every achievement you never achieved and build on that and not even bother getting out of bed. Like, that's what Forget the fact that Fox News is is Republican. It, it, it's the tactic of disempowering people and making them feel like there's dangerous people everywhere who want to kill you. And there's a system that's out to destroy you and to dismantle you. And that also, if you step out, they will humiliate you and, and single you out. There's a lot of singling out. So um, I, I was so sick of hearing people using the language that, you know, pointed to people and said, this is a bad person and we are divided and we suck and nobody gets along. 
because I saw people figuring out how to do stuff all over the country, you know, in, in Iowa, in Wisconsin, in Nevada, having fun, trusting each other, having community reads. Yeah, I think I just couldn't stand it any longer. And I said, this is how they do it. They don't hug. They don't kiss. They don't get in a big circle and sing. But they have garlic festivals where they figure out like, oh, this guy, he's got a little OCD, but he's a great sound guy. So like, don't, you know, wash your hands before you go near him and don't try to touch him. But he's an awesome sound guy. So now we can do this. You know, like, I kept on seeing the ways that people organized themselves socially and thrived. And yeah, I felt like somebody's got to write about this. <laughs> and, and I decided that I had enough field experience to do it, which is not what a lot of um, urban planners have. I mean, I'm the one who's been to, you know, Twin Peaks Falls in, you know, Washington State and the Cherry Festivals in Michigan. And, you know, I've done all that stuff. 